Welcome to the David Gogo Soulbender Podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections of a life on the road. Welcome to episode 51. If you feel like showering us with money and jewels, we're okay with that. And you can do that at paypal.me slash guitar. Got a question for us? It's entirely likely that we'll have some sort of answer for you. Hit us up with that at soulbenderpodcast.com at gmail.com, and we'll see if we can make you podcast famous. On this one, the King of Boogie is having a bit of a noisy chin wag with Odds co-founder, recording engineer, producer, and occasional tragically hip album mixer, Stephen Drake. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Soul Bender Podcast. I'm sitting with uh, Mr. Stephen Drake. Aloha. And we're looking uh, at a beautiful view of Lions Bay High in the hills at the secret lair of Mr. Rick Hopkins. How are you doing, sir? Well, feeling all right today. You know, I'm day drinking with Dave Gogo. How can, <laughs> how can, I, how can, how can we uh, complain? Exactly. Um, well, let's start at the beginning and we'll talk about um, you growing up because I think that's an important thing, uh, how you got into music and everything. So, so wh- where were you born and raised? Well, born in California, raised mostly in the Los Angeles area, you know, from, you know, I remember um, living in in, uh, West Hollywood, North Hollywood, Topanga Canyon, Malibu, Laurel Canyon, you know, just all the places where the uh, radical left now converges. (laughs) Now, were your parents musicians? My dad was a musician, as I think you know, because I think you knew my dad, right? He was the uh, the uh, leader of the Good Time Singers, who were um, they replaced the new Christy Minstrels on the uh, on the Andy Williams show, right? And uh, you know, he did some songwriting with Bobby Shane from the Kingston Trio. There's a few Kingston Trio songs that uh, that his pseudonym Stephen Yates is on there. And uh, so I grew up around music, you know, all around my life. I, I knew I wanted to play guitar as early as I can remember anything. Really? Yeah. I was a little worried about all the notes, so. <laughs> you just like the way it looked? I knew that that was what I do, but I found the, you know, sort of, it sounded to me like there was about a million notes. Okay. And, you know, how do you learn them all? Because the high ones and the low ones sounded different. I didn't realize in music that C and then there's another C. It's like the high notes were all different notes than the low notes. I didn't, I didn't get that at, at four and a half. Okay. <laughs> that, they're the same notes up higher. I was like, oh, but those notes and these notes. And I just, it, it seemed like an enormous pile of notes. Right. But I knew it was what I wanted to do. And... Through your parents, you got to see a lot of music as a child. Well, tons, you know. I didn't get to see the Beatles, but uh, my mom did. Mm-hmm. She came home after the show. She said, I couldn't hear the band at all. <laughs> the girls were screaming so loud. I, I was like, shut up. I want to hear them sing. So, yeah, yeah. No, but um, there was a lot of music growing up, you know, from all kinds of people from, you know, going to the hippie love-ins, you know, where the doors were playing. They, they, my my. Dad, though, he wasn't really the best at it. They were managing a group called the W.C. Fields Memorial Electric String Band, <laughs> which is not an easy name yeah, to sell. Yeah. But these guys were all contemporary with The Doors and all these L.A. bands. And so we'd be going out to all these shows, you know, and it's like there was a local bar in Topanga, the, uh, the uh, Corral, and, you know, there was a period... To me, it seemed like a year. It was probably two months um, where Taj Mahal was like playing every Tuesday night. And my dad and Taj were great friends. So, you know, we were down there every Tuesday night. And I sat there and watched Jesse Edwin Davis playing guitar more times than I can count. Yeah. And, you know, his tone in the room was like super. Yeah. Right. When you're sitting there, he had like, I think it was a super reverb amp or a twin, you know, some kind of fender amp and. Sometimes I, I see him playing the uh, Strat and sometimes the Tele, but I think he used the Tele for the slide playing. Oh, okay. Right, and, and 
did the strat for the other stuff. He's like Diamond Duck Blues, right? He's one of my favorite guitar players of all time. You know, I mean, did he not play it till I don't know. Childhood memory. I see a strat. Yeah. You know, um Yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic and and uh, but it was funny. I remember, you know, at the corral things you you know, cuz when you're a kid, right? You put your own ideas together because you don't know. So you're, you're figuring... St- and, and I remember once uh, we walked into the corral, you know, right after soundcheck, and Taj was sitting on stage and he grabbed the bass player's bass. He was like, do 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 And I was like, you play bass? Yeah. I'm like, he goes, oh, yeah. And I'm like, but aren't you the singer? How can you play bass? Right. Didn't make sense to okay. me. I, at that point in my life, I was so young. I thought, like, singers sing, bass players play bass. I thought everybody was like, you know, your instrument was your instrument. I found out, no, of course not. But. And, and Taj even um, named one of his songs after your parents. Well, he did. It's called Tom and Sally Drake, and the tuba's my dad, the banjo's my mom. So oh, okay. check it out. Oh, right? yeah. It's an instrumental, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's tuba and banjo. <laughs> So, and, you, and you've maintained a relationship with Taj? Well, I actually was so lucky to get to record him last year when he was up for the Folk Fest. And, um, you know, he had a couple sessions he wanted to get done because I guess he was busy and he promised to do some tracks. And he was in town and Adam, my brother, Adam Drake, who you've worked with, he's like, we'll call Stephen. <laughs> and so, you know, I set something up really quick down there. We went to uh, Hipposonic in the B room and you know we I start recording with Taj we're doing this banjo thing and I put the mix up and you know just kind of like here's the tune okay great play you know it's going really smooth and about about an hour into the session I said I like this singer you know she really reminds me of Ricky Lee Jones okay then Taj says that's because it is Ricky Lee Jones no kidding Tosh was playing on a Ricky Lee Jones record. Oh, so, wow. So I'm like, oh, well, that explains it. Um, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now I, yeah, I was like, okay. I remember last night when we were chatting and you mentioned something about Taj's uh, approach to recording. where he, he doesn't want to record necessarily. Well, well what it was, I mean, in, in the midst of doing a session, right, nowadays, and actually ever since we invented the multi-track back in the, in the 70s, 60s there's I'll say it with with quotations there's recording where the techniques where you can punch in one word at a time you can record one line you can keep working right. on a little riff until you get it exactly right right you know what I mean that's like recording where we we use the technology to create something and there was something came up and we were saying I said well maybe we could we could try this and he says Taj says nah that's too much like recording I don't do recording you know it's, you have to see the little uh, quotations around recording it's like, yeah. or, or italics he says what I do I'm making music there happens to be a mic there that's right. what I do right and he, he's been doing it for a while yeah yeah he just he just plays it yeah you know that that's that's cool and he's he's still giving right at 80 years old yeah you know we did we did two takes basically of whatever we were doing and we just picked one no editing modern world it's like no there it is wow and what when did you uh come up to canada well we moved to canada in 1971 i was 11. just about to turn 12. And where did you move to? We moved to the Slocan Valley oh, yeah. in the middle of nowhere, Winlaw, B.C. <laughs> um, uh, another person who used to hang out there is Liev Schreiber. Oh. Actor. Because his dad, Tell Schreiber, was in my mom and dad's movie they made in the 70s. And, you know, we, I, I used to see him there, you know, but he was just a little guy, right? Oh, okay. Kind of, you know. Yeah. Coming to see his dad. So... And he turned out to be, you know, the massive famous actor he is. And, and his brother, Pablo Schreiber, they, they, they both hung out at all. So what, what drew your folks to Winlaw? Well, you know, back in the 60s, right, or late 70s, um, there was a war going on, Vietnam uh, War. Okay. There was a draft happening. 
I was turning 12, and though to me it seemed quite remote, from the perspective of being older, I realized I was going to be um, eligible for the draft in four years. Wow. So, to a kid, you think that's eternity, like, but to my parents, that's tomorrow. Right. Right. Right? right? Like, we got to get out of here. Our kids are going to get drafted. So, you know, the fact that my dad was Canadian, that, and, uh, you know, there was a big earthquake down there. I forget the date, but it was a big enough earthquake. And after that, it was like, you know, we had to get out before California fell into the sea. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, we made that move uh, to the Kootenays. It's kind of a, the Slocan Valley was kind of a spot where we had a lot of expatriate Americans. Yes, I've heard that, 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 that you know, it was like an incredible music scene because of that. There's this convergence of Americans and well, Canadian yeah, Canadians not so much the you know, but, but a, a pretty wide variety of people up there. Um, you know, I mean, as influential for me as a person was that um, Bob Inwood and George Metzger, who were two San Francisco underground comic artists, lived down the road. And wow! I went down there and learned how to properly draw a comic strip. Cool. Um, I even got I even had one going for a while, the Ricky Rat series. Really? Yeah. You might even find it. I don't know. It got published in one paper in Vancouver. But, you know, there in the Kootenays, it's like there was always someone around that I could say, hey, show me how to play something. Was Gary Kramer around? Well, yeah, yeah. That's where we met Gary. I met Gary on my very first gig in my entire life. Really? We spoke of Tel Schreiber and his son, Liev Schreiber. And uh, my very first gig in my life was playing at Tel Schreiber's farm party there. Really? And Gary Kramer was there with brain damage. And he, he was an interesting fellow. I was just starting to get to know him songwriter. when he passed. Yeah, I really liked him a lot. In fact, I think I first met him right where we are right now in Rick's kitchen. He was hanging out. And then I hung out with him a little bit on... Uh, what island was he on? Uh, he was on Galliano. Ga- yeah, Galliano. Hey, well, you know, it's, it's one of these things. I mean, now me, I've had a chance to work with all of these people who are, are well-known, you know, I mean... Got to jam with Mama Cass and Rick Danko when I was 15. All kinds of really great stuff. But I'm always noticing the influence of, you know, it's kind of less so now of the people in your life that weren't famous, but that influenced you. Good songwriters that never made it. Yep. Right? Bands you were in where the guys never made it, you know, as a young guy, guitar players who weren't famous for guitar playing but these people you know have a profound influence on 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 us and you know we always want to hear about well you're influenced by this or you name somebody that someone knows everybody wants context and it's like yeah how do you talk about the unknown influences of friends and family you know the first gig the guy that you know loaned you his fuzz pedal and you freaked out for the first time because he was going tree planting he said use my fuzz tone and then we were yeah we went crazy you know that guy's name was al what was his name al something right um these i often think as much about the you know unknown influencers but you know, I come from the time where information came from older people. Yeah. And all the good shit I learned, I learned from someone more experienced than myself, all the way up the line, becoming a, a pro mix engineer and and all of this. You know, every bit of information that I got came from another person. Right? Yeah. Kind of like that exchange. And, you know, one of the things I reflect on is how we've kind of broken that where everybody thinks, oh, just go on the internet. You can learn whatever you want, right? right? And it's like, you know, yeah, I guess you can go after audio clickbait, you know, and and click on something that sounds like they they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I was talking to my son recently, and and yeah, that's what I was talking about. Like, Like the people that no one's ever heard of, and I don't even know if some of them are around anymore, but guys that were older than me, 
that would just give me shit for being out of tune. Like, you know, tune that fucking guitar up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and then the guy would show me how to put strings on properly. He goes, well, look at your strings. They're all jumbled up on the on the peg heads, you know? like, And, and you know, that that's huge education right there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those, you know, the... And just, you know, I mean, there was a guy in Vancouver, Peter Mendieta. He was a guitar player. Fairly well known in the mid-70s. He taught me to play Johnny B. Good. Right. I said... Show me how to play Johnny Be Good. And he's like, oh, all right. And it's like, after that, you know, it opened the door to all the, like, how do you play those Chuck Berry riffs? He was like, just like this. and Just an hour. It, it's hard to realize the influence of Chuck Berry. Oh. Well, people don't realize how big his catalog is of, of a certain stuff before he, when he was kind of halfway between blues and rock and roll. Like yeah. There's lots of material that nobody's heard. It's just, like, so great. Yeah. So how you long know, were you in the Slocan Valley for? And did you, did you move to other places I soon? lived there. I was I moved to the Slocan Valley just before I turned 11. Like, in June, I turned 11 two months later. I turned, turned 12 two months later. And um, lived there till... Uh, um, 77 I went to music school in Edmonton where I met our mutual friend Rick Hopkins a couple years after that so you met Rick in Edmonton yeah I did in, in the second year I was there um, and you know went to music school when I when I showed up in Edmonton um, and went down to the school and did a little kind of thingamajigger and they didn't let me in the school really said, no and but all the other guys in the band were in the school I said hey I just fucking moved up here and I'm really good let me in the school and they did really like a totally American <laughs> my way I just pushed my way in they said okay fine you really uh, want to come yeah. and who, who were some of the players in the Edmonton scene at that time that you were well you know digging? I mean when when I moved there what it was 1977 so it was all top 40 bands oh okay right you know, the biggest band on the circuit was Shama, with Jeff Neal, who, you know, is somewhat well-known, you know, and, and we were kind of a crappy cover band called Flash Landing. And, uh, you know, what was happening in the actual scene, I mean, there was a jazz scene going on there, so I knew those guys because they were the teachers at the school, and then they'd do gigs, and, and um, you know, it was a pretty cool time there going to Edmonton falling in love with a pretty girl at the school and yeah. and uh, you know this and that but uh, thanks to that pretty girl I was able to meet Bill Evans the piano player wow yeah right before she flew off to New York to go live with him <laughs> <laughs> but he was very polite about, about, about moving in on my girlfriend and, 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 and taking her away to New York he was he was so cool about it. Like, was he just in if town for a gig? Or? Yeah, he came in for a gig, right, at this at this weird bar. I forget where it was, but you know Edmonton. So it was the one that had the plane hanging oh. on the old church where they had the where they brought in piece by piece and built this, they put right. this okay. early 50s ramjet yeah. plane hanging in the middle of the club. And um, Bill Evans was, was playing two nights. And so, the, you know, Lori was the... Uh, I'll say Lori because there's a Bill Evans song called Lori. Okay. Right? Uh, which he wrote for her. Um, and Bill Bill came to the show and, and, you know, or sorry, Bill played the show and, and I came down to see it and it was just a, absolutely tremendous, of course, mind-boggling what Bill Evans could play. And um, second night, you know, they kind of connected and Bill came over to Lori's house to have some tea and sit around. And I was the boyfriend, and he was so nice to me, right? <laughs> like you know, he I, he he let me talk to him, you know. And I said, I I, I said, uh, so Bill, do you ever smoke dope when you play? And he's like, oh man, I remember Eddie Gomez and those guys. He used to smoke weed before the show, and I'm like, how can you play like that when you're stoned, man? He says. In my case, you know, 
I, when I was in the army, right, I would smoke dope, I'd smoke a joint, play the show, and while I'm playing the show, I'd be thinking, ah, I'm a genius. Right. And then I'd hear the recording, and I'd be really depressed, because I'd hear the recording, and I'd go, he'd say, I'm not a genius. <laughs> and he says to me, he says, but then I figured out the answer. Play the gig straight, and smoke the joint when you listen to the tape. Right. Then I knew I was a genius. <laughs> That's excellent. Now, oddly enough, we applied the Bill Evans rule when I recorded uh, Gord Downey on Coke Machine Glow. We, we decided to apply the Bill Evans rule. Okay. Which was, we'll have a puff after the day's done, when we're listening right. to the tracks. And right. you know what? That's a good record. Did you produce that record? Well, I did. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, Gord, Gord is on there as a producer, and, um, and Josh, what's his name? But, you know, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing with that one. I worked really hard on it, so people wonder what it is I did. Right. So I would just say, well, listen to the other Gord Downey albums, and everything right. that's different about them right. between that record is what I did. Right. <laughs> I'm going to jump back to Edmonton real quick, and then we'll get to... Uh some of the projects you've worked on. Uh, during that scene, was, was Gay Delorum on the scene? I didn't know Gay, but you know, he was around, we heard of him. Okay. But, but this is a little prior to that, 77, you know, we didn't really hear as much about Gay until the rodeo song. Right, yeah. And then we kind of knew who he was. He'd done all that Cheech and Chong stuff. We yeah. just didn't know it was him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I only got to know him a little bit, but he was a cool dude. So. What brought you to the west coast of Canada? Gary Kramer. Really? Previously mentioned. Um, where I, I was finishing up music school, 79, late 79, and got in touch with Gary, and I said, well, let's start a band, man. Let's, let's, let's get to the top. Let's, you know, it was just at the beginning of the whole new wave punk thing. And, yeah. and uh, you know, Rick Hopkins, who I knew had been jamming with with my brother Adam you know we were like starting our little jazz trio and we thought oh, we'll go out and we'll live in Vancouver and <clears throat> you know work with Gary so we hopped in Rick's van and we moved out here wow Gary had a place for us to stay and we've been I've been here ever since so between that time and the formation of the odds what were you doing? Just on the music well, playing playing locally, or well, a lot of things came up. Let's see, you know, after we got out there, um, Gary's thing kind of went up and down because Gary was a, a wild and mm -hmm. and uh, challenged soul at times, you know, with what it is he wanted to do. Uh, I think he realized at some point that he actually didn't want to play the music star game. Right, it just wasn't interesting to him. So, let's see, in, um, I think it would be 1980 or 81, I ended up joining Jerry Doucette's band. Oh, you did? Yeah. He, the Deuce. The Deuce, right? He came to a party I was playing, and um, it was a Halloween party. And uh, I, we were jamming, and I got a call like the next week. Wow. I said, hey, that person has natural rhythm. And I played with Jerry for about two years. Really? He, you know, when he passed recently, <clears throat> I was contacted by a couple of journalists, and I, you know, just to get my thoughts, I don't know why, but um, he was a badass motherfucker musician, man. Like, he's one of the best guitar oh, players I've ever heard, and oh, singer, yeah. and songwriter, and... and oh, no, he, he, you know, he, he really could play. Yeah. Mama right? let him play. Yeah, <laughs> he, he could really play, right? Like... Like, you know, and very consistent, you know, like it didn't really matter whether he was in a good mood or a bad mood. He could always pull it off. Yeah. You know, there was, there was, you know, occasionally, occasionally he would get, he would, we would know if we looked on the set and, and wine, 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 Spodiote was on the set list. We'd know ahead of time, Jerry's drinking wine tonight. It's going to be a loose <laughs> show. The deuce is loose. The deuce is loose. Oh, yeah. And you look on the set, this wine's and you look over, and he's got a glass of wine. 
I'm going to take over for a minute because I remember one time I'd finished some gig in Vancouver and it finished early and we went down to the Yale and there was one of these, you know, Vancouver super group things happening at the Yale, like a super blues group. I think Hans Damer was the singer and uh, probably Mike Collange, you know, like a bunch of those guys. And um, it was Robbie Montgomery was playing guitar and the Deuce was playing guitar. And the Deuce was just kind of standing at the side of the stage and, you know, playing, but he didn't seem to be that into it. And then Robbie starts, he wants to trade fours with the Deuce. So the Deuce is kind of looking at him like, whatever. So, and then Robbie, all of a sudden he, he just, he, he poked the fucking sleeping bear, man. And all of a sudden Deuce just looks at him and he started playing the most amazing guitar playing I've ever heard, like stadium rock and roll solos. Oh, absolutely. And the whole room just kind of turned and looked towards the stage and the energy in the room just went up. And as he built this solo, people just started fucking freaking out. And Hans Stamer actually grabbed the mic and went, the Deuce is loose, that Deuce is loose. Like I never seen anything or heard anything like that. But then the other one I remember, and I, sorry, sorry Deuce, I'm gonna tell this story. I was sitting at, at the bar for some, it was a charity thing at the Yale, same thing, and uh, and uh, he walks in, and I said to uh, I sit with to, with Jerry Adolph, and I said, "Man, Deuce is so great." And he goes, "Yeah, you know, hopefully he'll kind of stay straight for the set or something." And I said, "Oh well, you know, we'll see." <laughs> and Deuce goes to the bar, and he gets two double Jack and Cokes, so he's got one in each hand. And Jerry Adolph turns to me and he goes, "Ah," he goes, "Irish handcuffs." <laughs> But he was he was a mother man, and then so and, and then what else were you doing between that and, and the odds? Well, <clears throat> well, you must have learned a lot touring with Jerry, though. Oh, absolutely! You know, um, <clears throat> just getting your first gig and being on the road and playing, mm -hmm. and having roadies, and nice. and uh, <clears throat> you know, went through a few different drummers and this and that. But uh, with Jerry. He, you know, it's interesting things. I mean, he 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 was a good guitar player at fourteen, right? And so he toured around as a kid. And he, even when we were on the road, and he was in his late thirties, it's like he was a giant kid, right? Right. We played a lot of video games. A lot really? Pac-Man. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we 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 get off the bus and while they're setting up Jerry and be there on the Ms. Wow. Pac-Man, and uh, you know the drinking and the and you know playing Angel Acres and shit. You yeah. Know, with with me, the total like Californian nerd surrounded by bikers. And it's always the smallest guy in the crew that picks on me. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can push this guy around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, those are wild gigs. I played that one a couple well, times. Well, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like... It's <laughs>
There's a fresh one from David Gogo on the Soul Bender podcast. You used to mean so much to me. And we're back at it with Stephen Drake. How did the odds get together? How did that? Well, <clears throat> you know, around, let's see, Jerry's thing finished in, with me, I finished with Jerry in like 82, 83 sort of time. And uh, I was living with Rick Hopkins here, you know, where we're sitting in his house right now. We were living over in Commercial Drive. And, doing some stuff with Gary and this and that, but uh, I kind of just decided to just clean up my act and try and find a gig, right? Because we were pretty high. I had dreadlocks about 10 years too early. <laughs> right? they, they were hip 10 years later, and had I had my dreadlocks, had I waited, I'd be like, would have fit right in style-wise. But, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was so far ahead, I was not even in the game. Um, and, uh, but I just kind of like, I don't know, I had a conniption one day. I said, ah, screw it. I cut off all my hair and started looking for little gigs around. And, um, I played with, uh, a group called Empty Vessels. Oh, I remember that band. Yeah. Yeah. For the Spotlight 85. Right. And we won. But, you know, it's one of these things of, like, a contest band. It's like, put the band together, you do the contest, and it's winning the contest, there was no plan after that. Right. Right? So, since we didn't have a plan, we, what could we do? Uh, the following year, Spotlight 86, I, I started, a, did another group, did my own thing, and, and we won that year, too. Spotlight 86, which is its own silly... Um, unimportant mess that it was <clears throat> and I one night after I finished the gig um, this bass player from one of the other bands comes up and says hey fire your bass player and hire me oh yeah no my bass player was really good uh, what was his name Rob something <clears throat> and uh, but things fell apart with the, with the 86th Street, or sorry, uh, Spotlight 86 band, the same way for the same reason that the Empty Vessels fell apart. is no plan after the contest. Right. Yay, 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 contest. Now what? Yeah. We didn't actually have any kind of fan momentum or any kind of thing to the band. So, you know, when that fell apart, I was like, oh, cool. I had this guy's number. I called up this guy. I said, hey, he said to call you and if you want to do something. So started working with Doug. So that's Doug Elliott. Doug Elliott. And uh, I brought in Paul Brennan. Oh, okay. Drummer. Who was not someone Doug knew. And, you know, we tried we tried putting something together with Pat Stewart and, and Jeff Neal. And they, they decided not to do it. Then we brought Paul in and started jamming. And Paul knew this guy, Craig. He was in a band. I forget the name of the band. And this is Craig Northey. Craig Northey, yeah. And uh, so we got together and had a jam session and thought, hey, cool, we book a gig. And, and um, <clears throat> in, you know, out of that, we thought, well, it would be nice to be able to play together every night and not have to have day jobs. So we put together a sort of a alternate um, identity for the band as the Dawn Patrol. And managed to get ourselves a house gig down at the Roxy, where we played for like 10 years. Yeah, right on Granville Street. Yeah, you know, night after night, six nights a week, there we were, just playing 60s covers and stuff. But and you guys rehearsed in the basement? We had a little, they gave us a room down there to rehearse, and we had a little studio down there. And With the money we were making from playing at the Roxy, we were able to um, 
pay for studio time. And we went over to Crosstown uh, with Al Roger and oh, yeah, with recorded Al. our first demos. Right. And, you know, it was a pretty good team for different combination of talents with the odds. And we managed to get ourselves... I think, I think one, there was one thing where, where Doug was like, I'm going on vacation for a month. And uh, down to Mexico with my family and this and that. He's like taking a month off, going on vacation. And we were like, well, what should we do? I mean, do we sit around for a month and do nothing? And I think, I think it was me who said, we should go to L.A. Try and get a deal. So we gathered up a suitcase full of cassette tapes of all our demos. And we hopped on the plane and... Did you make any phone calls ahead of time? Or? We had a couple of contacts, but really, actually, it was just go down to L.A. and just start knocking on doors. Wow. Right? Literally. You know, we got a little hotel on Sunset Strip, and wow. we, we just... We'd had some people who'd come up to see us. We'd been sending tapes, okay. so we talked to them. And there was these various, you know... On that first trip, right... The various people that we met, bumped into, um, you know, uh, connections. Mona Cecil being very important, one of the first people we met, connected us up with this guy Tom DeSavia at ASCAP. Mona Cecil worked at ASCAP, and they liked our songs, and we all got along. Right. And so, out of that initial trip, just cold trip down there. We, we got our manager, Chris Blake, from Blake and Bradford. We connected with several other people that remained part of our career for, for many years after that, you know, which is, you know, a little different then than it is now because, you know, there's a million songs a day going on the internet. So yeah, yeah. back then, even though there was a lot of bands, you know, the noise level, if you, if you were actually slightly better than the others probably get some attention right and uh you know about maybe a year and a half after that we signed our our publishing deal with virgin right uh virgin music and um then we got the deal with uh and then virgin music was able to put us on showcases and stuff and we got hooked up with a bmg subsidiary called zoo yeah and uh which, because of Zoo, Zoo Records, right, being a BMG affiliate, the, um, one of the other BMG labels, uh, Irving Azos label, I forget the name of it, Giant or something. Yeah, yeah, they, they call them the Little Giant. Irving yeah, they, Giant Records. Well, they just released the latest Warren Zevon album. Yeah. And so Warren was like, well, I don't want to have to pay a lot of money for a band. So BMG got any bands that... You know, so he had. They gave him a stack of CDs, and he listened to all the CDs. And I think they somebody was kind enough to make sure our our record was near the top. Yeah. And he, he Warren heard what we were playing, and he said, "Ah, these guys will do." Right. So that turned into a, a, a six week um, U.S. continental tour there of pretty well every state in the union. So with Warren, which was definitely once again, you know, these things where you you get to learn, you know, how the big guys rule. Was he wild and crazy during those days? Not at all. No. Okay. No, no. Well, he obsessive. Yes. Right. I guess whatever he did, he did totally. On that on that trip, he was uh, he wanted to lose weight. Oh. So and he was reportedly according to the road manager, hypoglycemic, which means when he needs food or something, he has to eat right now. The only thing that he ate on the entire tour was hamburger patties. Okay. He'd order a burger with no cheese, no mayonnaise, no anything, and then he'd throw the bun away and he'd eat just the meat. Right. And, like, that was all he ate for about <laughs> six weeks. And, and, and at the end of the tour, he was like... You know, well, his gut was gone. Though I was very sad to hear that he died of stomach cancer, uh, intestinal cancer. I think like and and like it's like yeah. a bad idea to eat only hamburger meat for 
however long you did. So you you know, that was just kind of like a shame. It's like, ah, oh, crap. So, so you guys were like his band? Yeah, we were the band and the opening act and the band. And I, I mean, that, sh that, that tour was, was quite memorable because, you know, great conversations with Warren, you know, and, you know, mysteries, of course, I, I, would, I, I wonder about because he was working on a string quartet. Mm. And I'm like, what happened to Warren's string quartet? Right, right. right? He yeah. had a little book with a string quartet he'd written. And it's like, has anybody ever heard it? Whatever happened to Warren's string quartet? Uh, it was probably pretty neat. But the, one of the cool things about that gig was every single night you play and you just, you crack up. Right. Because the lyrics are just... Well, yeah, well, he's brilliant. Hilarious, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And the backups you're singing, I mean, when, when, uh, anytime you get to walk up to a microphone and your job is to sing the backups and your backup is rolling the headless Thompson gonna, right? What a hilarious yeah. lyric to get to sing yeah. seriously, and, you know, give it, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Like, a, a, you know, a, an absurd song about, you know, a ghost story about the headless Thompson gunner that yeah. shows up and yeah. saves the guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and also, you know, his thing about, about the audience, about messing with the audience a little bit. The, one of the things that Warren demanded as his rider, you know, a contract uh, stipulation on this on that tour was he got to chose the music that played between the opening set and his set. Not a bad idea. He had control over yeah. over over what was like you know without reservation, like goddamn DJ, right? You yeah. know, like he didn't really like it that the band would finish and then the DJ would crank up all these pop hits. Yeah, and no, that's he'd good, get on good stage call. Good and call. you know all the the audience is all wound up from listening to the latest and greatest smash hit of whatever with some DJ kind of competing with the band. So Warren was like, "No way." Yeah. Right. I control the, the music between the first. You play whatever you want before the opening band plays. Do your thing. After the opening band finishes and I begin, I control the music and. Now, you'd think, oh, great, well, what's he going to play? <laughs> Was it kooky? Well, once given the power, he, being the guy he was, he, he made it part of the show. And that, um, I, I remember that um, Neil Young record came out a few years ago, Arc Weld, actually 20 years, 25 years ago, Arc Weld, or there was Arc, yeah. which was all the live shows. And then the other record was Weld, okay. which was the endings of all the shows edited together. Oh. So the entire album consists of... Endless feedback of the, the, the tail end of, oh, I didn't know of, that. of okay. all these Neil Young concerts <laughs> where the band's just kind of screaming feedback at the end of the song. So somebody edited all of these wow. feedback things with smashing and crowds cheering and you know it goes on for like you know 40 minutes of this so <laughs> this would be the music as soon as we finish playing this cacophonous sound comes out of the speakers <laughs> so loud and, and after about 20 minutes the audience is like shut the fuck up get this shit up fuck you they're getting all wound up because it's like completely chaotic random music right that's and then about five minutes before we hit the show, it, it would switch over to a Dutch language instruction tape. No kidding. And you would hear this woman's voice going, can you direct me to the bus stop? <laughs> Do you know where I can get directions to the train station? That is... How much for this item? Right? And it just would go on like this repeat. And the crowd would be like, just like, bring the band on, music! And then when we would hit the stage, 
And the first line, he was like, Grandpa pissed his pants again. He don't give a damn. Right? It was like, that was the first line of every show. And, what a guy. And uh, the, it was, for the crowd, they were like, thank you. <laughs> right? You come in, right? So it's like, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, audience manipulation yeah, thing yeah. he was doing. He Brilliant. Was kind of like, he worked on it. You know, other interesting things like, you know, the show, what he said between the songs and stuff, it's worth, you know, and the set times. And he worked on that from the beginning of the tour to the end, perfecting it. The timing, what follows what, what he wants to talk about. By the time we got to the end of the thing, it was very, very tight. Yeah. Like, it was a really pretty clean show. So, with the odds... Your time in the band, did you guys write together, or were you writing on separately, or did you, you know was there a collaboration or all of them? Yeah, actually, you know, we had a little system, um, you know, which proved quite practical for everyone. Which is, you know, I've seen bands fall apart over various songwriting fights. So we just had a system, which is. If the four guys are in the room and a song comes out, four-way split. Even if somebody writes the lyrics or stuff, don't be precious. If three guys write the song, it would be 30-30-30, it would be 10% um, for the guy who wasn't there. If two guys wrote the song, it would be 40-40-10-10. Oh, okay. And if one guy wrote the song, it would be 70-10-10-10. So it, there was all combinations, right? So some, some stuff is like, you know, I would come in with a tune or Craig would come in with a tune, but lots of other stuff, it was just messing around and mm -hmm. you do something with that. What are some of your favorite memories of being in that band? Well, shit, that's hard to say. I haven't thought about that for a long time, but you know, good moments, you know, when we signed our publishing deal and then... You know, there was a giant tackle. Right, right. Yeah. Was, what do you do? Yeah. Right? Ah! Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, great moments. So, I mean, hard to pick a moment, but working with Susan Rogers on two albums, right? Prince's uh, engineer, wow. co producer. Learned a lot. There, okay. Right? Touring with the hip, fantastic. Right? The, yeah. the, 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 the winter tour with the hip, stadium tour. Really great. Um, <clears throat> you know, just heck, hard to say. It's a, it's a huge chapter. And how long were you in the band? Oh, I think, uh, let's see, we started in 87, and, and um, the band broke up in, in 2000, which was rather sad, but a lot of people were let down by that. It wasn't something I had anything to do with. And then you took these skills that you were honing as a producer and a, and a recording engineer and mixer. And so let's talk about that transition. Well, I always had a knack for the for the technical side of music and engineering. You know, it's like it's I just I have a knack for it. Right? It's just some people, you know, they, it, it makes sense to you hooking up things and getting an idea of what's happening. And I'm kind of a bit of a science nerd and practical type <clears throat> and so you know I'd always wanted to be in in recording and and that's because I think some of my earliest memories are are being in the studio at Capitol Records wow. while my dad was recording right and um I don't remember that I was a problem but I do remember that they gave me my own section of the board to keep me quiet. <laughs> you know, faders and controls yeah, yeah. and knobs. At, at, the, at Capitol Studios. At Capitol, yeah. Wow. yeah. I, I went back there once in the, in the um, first one of these LA things and I went inside to use the washroom. There was something going on in the parking lot. And uh, of course, you go there when you're four and then you come back when you're 30. It's like, wow, everything seems so much smaller. Right. 
Well, you know, inside that Capitol building, that looks like a stack of records. Everything's curved in there, and the studios are all inside. And, and uh, according to my mom, the engineer that was recording it was the great Bones Howe. Oh, really? Who recorded that. So Like he's legendary. He's legendary Bones Howe. And uh, those first Tom Waits albums... He did those. Yeah, well, you know. And he so, did a lot of things. I mean, but that's just, I just remember so, that's how I got hip to him. So you wonder, you know, as they talk about development, and now that we're parents, we, we have quite a bit of perspective on this. But yes, that early environment plunged into, as a kid, you know, it's like mm -hmm. mom doesn't want to get a babysitter. Let's go down and watch daddy's session. Yeah. And, uh, so I always felt comfortable around the idea of recording. Just seemed very natural to me. So, you know. And, and, and we talked about Gord Downey. So you worked with Gord on his solo stuff, but you also worked with the, with the Tragically Hip. The... Well, I mixed two albums with those guys. Actually, Trouble at the Hen House was um, one of the first albums I ever actually mixed. Okay. You know, well, not one of the first, <clears throat> but one of the first major label records. Okay. I'd just done 5440 right before that, and they got me out uh, there. And, you know, I, th I think we went to visit them, and they were playing some stuff, and they were talking about mixing it. I said, well, why don't you just mix it here at the house? And they said, you could do that? And I said, why not? It looks good. They had an API console. They had another little Neve console. They had Studer 24-track. Oh, look, there's Steve Air. Uh, we have visitors here at uh -oh, Mixed Oh, we have visitors during the podcast. Um, um, and with his crew. Um, so that record went really well. I mean, you know, as far as musical moments, it's not very often any mixer gets to get a song like A Head by a Century uh, under your fingers, right? right? Where. Right. You know, you put up the tape, you align the line the tape machine, you get it all going, you get up and up comes up comes the song and it's obviously a hit. Mm -hmm. So the first thought is, how do I not fuck this up? Right, right. Because it's a <laughs> it's great, an obvious hit. It's a great song. It's like it's obviously a hit song and yet and yet, you know what, you could you could ruin it easily during the mix. Working with the hip. Yeah, because I mean that's kind of like that. That they, they were that was a real like they were they were big by then. Like oh yeah, it was solid, right? They they'd already gone like diamond, but you know it's funny, right? A Canadian band, right? You know, and it's hard for Canadians to know what it is to be Canadian. Yeah, because you know it's hard to see see yourself. But I don't know if this defines Canadian, but I, in, just to me a little bit it does, which is. Um, there was this one tune on, on Trouble at the Hen House. It's a great tune. It's called Sherpa. Okay. And put up the mix. It's going along. It's very, very, you know, very atmospheric, very far out, really interesting, dark, deep song. But between the first verse and the second verse, there was this weird acoustic guitar thing. Like, kind of like Bluebird kind of, oh. you know, Buffalo Springfield Bluebird. Right, right, right. Like complicated picking and stuff, right. like two guitars, and and then it's like, and, it, you know, it doesn't work, and I'm, you know, as diplomatically as I can, I'm like, I don't know, this, this kind of doesn't work here, right? And actually, quietly, I'm saying to myself, the fact is, it just doesn't cut it for a hit al hip album. It's good. Their shit has to, they can't, they can't get away with, with this. The, you know, and uh, you know, and we started doing some muting, and it turns out that you know they tracked it live off the floor with Johnny's playing drums, and the guitar is picking up in the overheads and stuff. They're all in the same room, and Robbie just hit a clam, you know, a wrong note, pretty bad one. Yeah. And when he hit the clam, Johnny was like, "Well, are we stopping?" That was a pretty bad note. So. The, Rhythm faltered a little bit. And then they put on this acoustic guitar part to try and cover it up. But, oh, okay. Right? To try and cover it up where, where the music went weird. So they put this guitar thing on there. 
and it wasn't working. You know, we, we tried this, we tried that, you know, can we punch in, can we fix this? It's like, no, 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 <laughs> none of this works. It's yeah. just like, no, that, that bad note is hiding in there and it's just, the rhythm goes off and it just, it's not good. But only that one spot. So I, I turned to the guys, I said, look, musically it'll work if we cut the tape here, cut this whole section out, cut back in for the next verse. It works. And we messed around a little, little, little half inch edit, and it's like musically this works, right? And you know, I, I want to do it since we got all these echoes and reverbs and all these other things going on. I, I, I want to cut the two inch. And of course, I'm the guitar player from the Odds, and known to be pretty good engineer. But they didn't know if I was a real engineer who could actually cut. And so you were still recording yeah, with, with, with tape, with that. Yeah, yeah, tape. We're, we're still using tape, and yeah. they're like. Like, yeah, we know you're, you're a talented guy, but do you know how to cut tape? And yeah, because cause that, I mean, that's an art. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a lost art now, isn't it? Yeah, it's a... Uh, so, you know, truth was, yeah, I'm good at cutting tape. Okay. Right? I, I did quite a bit of it on the 5440 record and, and other stuff. And tape editing is fun and interesting. And if you're careful, it it works. And if it doesn't work, you can fix it. So, anyway... To go on the story, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna cut the master, and everybody gets very quiet. The house is all silent. He's cutting tape. <laughs> oh, we don't want him to make a mistake. Quiet. Oh, shh. Yeah. It's like the house goes silent. I do the edit. It works perfectly. No problems. Sounds great. And it's what you hear on the record today. Wow. You'll ne you'll never hear where the edit was. Um, and after I was done each member of the band comes up to me and says, he individually takes me aside and says, oh man, thanks for fixing that. I hated that part. <laughs> All five guys in the band hated it, but you know, I don't want to say anything to the other guys. You know, I don't, right. don't want to make anyone feel bad, but That's thanks funny. for fixing that. I, 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 I really hated that. Like, <laughs> I'm talking about in their own way, all five guys told me they hated it, but they would never say it to each other. Yeah. Even though they all felt the same way. And I thought, well, that's truly Canadian. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, actually. You know, yeah. without even saying what it is that makes it Canadian. It just, it just is. And you were involved with uh, Mushroom Studios for a while. What was the story there? Oh, that was an ill-fated thing. I helped um, Charlie Richmond. I found a buyer, and then I was a president for a while. But politics is not my speciality. All right. I got politicked out of there after about 18 months. Oh, yeah. But it was pretty cool, you know. We were actually doing something pretty cool, but just the politics of it, it ended up just right. crashing, right? Is that studio even open? Uh, there is somebody in the room. Uh, I think John Ram's in there. Hmm. Who's done all right as a producer. I did some recording there. I mean, it's a... Great studio. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I mean, another person that, you know, helped me be an engineer, Charlie Richmond, the guy who built it. I think uh, it's out in storage out in New West. I, I've actually got the original board. Really? Not the one they used for taking care of business, the okay. one after that. Okay. Right? When it was, uh, what was it, Canpar or Can Something Studios? And oh, I don't know. I yeah. can show you a picture of the board that they mixed um Taking care of business. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got the picture. But no, no, the original board. You know, these. There's another one of these unfamous guys that really influences your life about how to think about audio and what sound is and right how audio works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a huge thing. And so, what what are your projects these days? Well, we got the studio here. Uh, I've been playing with Tobacco Brown, you know, and doing a little writing of this and that. I don't know. It's chill. I'm, yeah. I'm turning 64. I'm turning into a Beatles song. <laughs> I'll be 64 on Saturday. So Is that wild, eh? I'm not sure what's next. Yeah. Who would have thunk it, eh? You know, hopefully I'm recording your record. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, man, for sitting down with me. We'll get that out soon. All right. All be right. seeing you, Dave. Thank you. Thanks to Stephen Drake for being on board for episode 51. Are you full of questions?
We're full of answers, among other things. Send those queries to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for helping put our landlord's kids through medical school with your kind contributions at paypal.me slash gogoguitar. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. We appreciate your listenage, and we love you. Go-Go Soul Bender Podcast. To stay up to date, follow David on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Until next time.